Book Three, Chapter Ten of Clara Vaughan, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Helen Taylor, Oxford, UK. Clara Vaughan, Volume Two, by R. D. Blackmore. Book Three, Chapter Ten. Soon as ever my sight was fully restored, and I had Dr. Frank's permission, I took to my drawing again, and worked at it till my eyes ached. This was the symptom upon which I had promised immediately to leave off. Then out I would rush, towards dusk, and away into the great square, full of the pure air of heaven, round by the church at the top, and six times round it till my breath was short. The senior sophist reminds me that round a square is impossible. After squaring the circle, extract the square root, dear idols, by the binomial theorem. You do learn so much at college, but I write simple and often foolish English. Never mind, I would rather write bad English than the best French ever written. One is the tongue of power and multitude, the other the language of nicety and demarcation. Which of the two is the more expansive? Even a woman may guess. High time it was for me to recruit my exchequer. Dr. Franks had charged me far less than I even dared to hope. How I trembled when I opened the envelope! What quick terror is half so bad as the slow fear of gathering debt! I was accustomed to medical charges at the time when I was an heiress, but his appeared to me now to be even below reason. The sum could hardly have paid him for his numerous walks to and fro. Then a wretched idea shot through me. Had he charged me so little, because he knew I was poor? I took Mrs. Shelfer into my confidence. She was likely to know what the London scale should be. The little thing soon reassured me. It was quite enough, she declared. If she were in my place, she would demand a discount for ready money. Oh, you dreadfully mean little woman! I should lose my sight and deserve it if I did. However, in spite of all this, money was scarce, and scarcer every day, and none of my grand revenues would fall due for ever so long. So another visit must be paid to Mr. Oxgall. Isola insisted on coming with me. To my surprise I found that, with all her soft simplicity, she had much more idea of making a market than I had. The reason, probably, was that she had much less pride. No pocket would hold mine when a tradesman attempted any familiarity, and whoso stands on a pedestal to sell is like to find the buyer's arm too short. Whether it were that, or the golden charm of her manner, or of something else, let Mr. Oxgall say, certain it is that the man of crackly canvas for whom, by the by, I have a sincere respect, because he cheated me so little and so neatly. This man, I say, regarded her with a wide-mouthed, brooch-eyed admiration, which he hardly ever expanded on anything out of oils. For the king of painters himself, she was a vision sweeter than dreams of heaven. Such a tint in her lustrous eyes, such tone in her dainty cheeks, such perfection of line in her features, and every curve of her exquisite shape, and bounding and sparkling through all, from the rippled wealth of her hair to the light-curved arch of her foot, the full play of her innocent, joyous, loving life. 
no wonder the picture-dealer shaded his eyes and gazed and rubbed them and gazed again i have frequently seen respectable elderly gentlemen whose rakishness has never been more than found vent in the cock of a hat magisterial men i mean who would no more think of insulting a girl in london or anywhere else than of giving their daughters as prizes for competitive skill in poaching such good men and true also simple-hearted clergymen for some there still are from the country these and the like i clara vaughan have seen when they meet my isola stop short wink frequently and without much presence of mind until she was gone by then shumble hotly across the street with hands in their tail-coat pockets for these gentlemen always expect most to be robbed when there is least chance of it pretend to look at a shop then march at top speed fumbling all the while for their spectacles until they got well ahead of us then i have seen them cross again some thirty yards in front with spectacles nicely adjusted and become again wholly absorbed by the beauty of metropolitan goods but when the light foot sounded from a fair gazing distance these same gentlemen have by some strange coincidence always turned full upon us in an absent and yet nervous manner and focused their green or pale blue eyes upon the rich violet orbs of isola i have even known them to look at me when they could see her no more to find some sympathy for their vague emotions idols knew it of course she did and she rather gloried in it she had much respect for a fine old gentleman and i know not how it was but nobody ever thought of insulting her when she could be clearly seen a pretty girl you would never call her though mr shelfer did the term would be quite unworthy even a beautiful girl sweetly beautiful though she was would hardly be your expression at least for a while but a lovely girl and the loveliest one ever seen that is what she would be called at once if you could take your eyes off to analyse your ideas isola knew it of course as i said before she knew all her wondrous gifts but as for being conceited a troll with a splay foot and a crop of short-horn carrots has often thrice her conceit a certain pretty graceful pride she had which threw a rosy playful halo around her but never made other women look plain in her eyes she will not value her beauty much until she falls in love and blessed is he who shall be the object if she is allowed to abide with him meanwhile mr oxgall wished for nothing but to hear and see her talk and this she did to some purpose i like a man who at the age of sixty is still impressible to the gay vein of youth i know at once by his eyes whether his admiration is abstract and admissible if it be i reciprocate it what clearer proof can we find that his heart has not withered with his body that he is not a man of mammon tinsel or phylactery in a word no mummy shall i ever finish this bargain i have never been so reflective before and all the time no lesser sum than five pounds hangs upon it five guineas which sounds better was the amount at which dear idols let off mr oxgall i believe she might have got ten but she had an excellent conscience it worked like a patent chronometer with compensation balance mine was still more sensitive i could hardly think my landscape perspective mare's nest and all worth that amount of money and i wished to throw off a guinea but idols would not hear of it 
"'Miss Valence, I am your factor for this beautiful landscape, which has cost you so much labour. Either accept my terms, inadequate as they are, or take the agency from me, and recommence with Mr. Oxgall, de novo, as we say at college.' Betwixt her beauty and my stately integrity, poor Mr. Oxgall knew not where he stood. I heard him mutter that he would rather go through fifty auctions, even if it was George Robbins. But if she had come to sell him a picture the very next day, he would have gone through it all again with the same infatuation. So I took the money, and now my evil demon, who had chafed beneath all this trampling, had his turn again. We had foolishly brought the great dog, Giudice, for our delight at the expansion of his mind. In Mr. Oxgall's shop he behaved to admiration. With the air of a connoisseur he walked from picture to picture, closed one eye and faintly wagged his tail. Then he found a Scotch terrier scarcely worth a sniff, and a mastiff whom he saluted with a contemptuous growl. The only work of high art he could discover was an interior with a flitch of bacon in the foreground, uncommonly well drawn. Before this he sat down, and, receiving no invitation, bedewed the boards with a stalactite from either side of his mouth. The dog was so well behaved, he never took anything without leave and saying a long grace. Unluckily Mr. Oxgall, mainly, I believe, to prolong his interview with idols, insisted upon taking us to the shop of a carver and gilder close by, where my first drawing, which had been sold, was to be seen in its frame. He declared that we could not tell what a painting was like until we had seen it framed. Observing several large mirrors in this shop, I begged that Giudice might be left outside, and so he was, but he did not stay there. Scarcely had we begun to discuss the effect of the frame on my drawing, when Giudice pushed his way in and looked about with a truly judicial air. The shop was long, and the owner was with us at the further end. I saw what would follow, and dashed off to stop him, but it was too late. Giudice had seen the very finest dog he ever beheld in his life, a dog really worth fighting. Up went his crest and his tail, one savage growl, and he sprang at him. Crash! And the largest mirror there was a wreck, and Giudice the rock beneath it. For a time he lay quite stunned, then to my great delight he staggered to me, not Isola, laid his cut paws in my hands and his bleeding nose in my lap, and explained it all to me with much entreaty for sympathy. This I gave him readily, even to tears and kisses. Isola wanted to scold and even to beat him, but I would not hear of it. He had seen another great dog between himself and us. How could he help attacking him? I ordered a sponge and some water at once, and bathed his forepaws, which were terribly cut. Then, remembering the inspector, I sent idols for some arnica. But the blood was not staunched by it as I expected. Perhaps the drug was not pure, or the hair obstructed its action. So I held his paws in the basin, and he whinged and licked me, and made my face all bloody. Meanwhile the poor carver and gilder thought much more of his looking-glass than of noble flesh and blood. The picture-dealer as well was in a great predicament. 
"'Mr. Oxgall,' I cried, still sponging the wounded dog's nose, "'let us hear no more about it. Tell me the full value of the mirror, and I will pay for it. What are glass and quicksilver, or even gold, compared to a noble dog like this? Not worth a wag of your tail, are they, my duck of diamonds? Give me another kiss, you delicious pet of a dog.' The delicious dog was entirely of my opinion. His beautiful eyes were unhurt. His nose tasted wholesomely salt. But Isola was not half so romantic. Little she cared about money for herself, yet she had no idea of seeing a friend disperse. Empowered by nature to wind all men round her finger, she now called Art to her aid, and Mr. Oxgall, who was halfway round already, had no chance of escape. She settled it thus. The carver and gilder, in consideration of his dealings with Mr. Oxgall, and his own careless exposure of the mirror, should accept cost-price for the article. That amount should be paid in equal shares by all three of us. By Mr. Oxgall, because he would drag us thither, by herself as the mistress of the dog, and by me as the cause of the expedition. She had attended a course of lectures upon jurisprudence, and her decision was better than that of a judge because she had seen the whole of it, and because the dog was hers, at least her brother's, which was all the same. As for the owner of the mirror, he must think himself wonderfully lucky in having met with such honest people, and in having sold his glass, and hadn't he got all the pieces? And she must have the largest one for Judy to dress his hair by. And so, indeed, she did. After our dear Portia had finished, and the whole thing was settled, it struck me that no lectures upon jurisprudence could turn wrong into right. Mr. Oxgall was quite blameless. So was I. So was Idols, except in bringing unlucky Giudice with her, which from the outset I had discouraged. She, as the temporary owner of the dog, should have borne all the loss, and so she would have done gladly, only she did not see it in that light. As it was, she tried afterwards to force upon me her last three guineas, that being the sum which I had paid as my third of the whole, but of course I would not accept them. She had no money with her, so I paid her contribution, but allowed her to repay me. Mr. Oxgall's third I made good to him, without consulting her, when he paid me for my next drawing. So I had earned five guineas and lost six. Is it always to be so? when I labour to make a little money? At my earnest entreaty, idols could refuse me nothing when I was in earnest, darling Giudici was brought home in a cab to my lodgings. I knew that he would not be cared for at the stables where he was boarded, and his wounds were very serious. As for home, Professor Ross, who detested dogs in general, would not admit him into the house. He even thought it a great stretch of grace to allow old Cora to watch the dog back to the stables, after he had been patrolling all the afternoon with his mistress. How I hate such low ingratitude! An animal is to serve us, body and soul, to crouch and fawn for our notice, not that Giudice ever fawned for him, but growled awfully, and we are to think it well off with a curse or a kick, which we durst not give it but for its loyalty to us. What pleasure I had in nursing that poor Giudici, and how grateful he was! 
when we got home i washed his wounds again with warm water this time as the bleeding was staunched and then i exhibited as the doctors absurdly say a little friar's balsam oh it does smart so giudici exclaimed with his eyes but i know it's for the best and you won't see me give one wince neither did i then a nice soft bandage over his lovely paws and a plaster across his nose and he lies snugly at the proper distance from the fire as proud as possible of being nursed and with an interesting air of pallid refinement on his features he will hardly notice idols but exclaims at length with the petulance of an invalid isola can't you let me alone clara understands a dog and i like her much the best so he followed me all around the room with his eyes and begged me to come and talk to him which i would not do because he needed quiet and composure end of book three chapter ten